standing to see who we are in Christ. And Father, we thank you for enabling us to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 tells us the story of creation. And there are ten times in this first chapter of Genesis where, God, where it's recorded that God said something. For example, he started off and he said, let there be light and light was. It shows us how God's creative power is used or utilized. It would have been very simple for God in telling Moses this story, giving him this account of, of uh, the creation of the earth. It had been real easy for Moses to, to just say, and God said this and this and this and this. But instead it separates them to show the importance, to show the principle of how God's creative power works. The Bible talks about the faith of God. You remember in, in uh, Mark chapter 11 where Jesus cursed the fig tree and came back by there the next morning and it was dried up from the roots. Peter calls it into question. He said, Master, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus said, have faith in God. Or another translation says, have the faith of God. The Bible tells us we have the same spirit of faith as God himself. We, of course, have it by measure, and he has it in full. But the same way God uses his faith to create the world is the way that we use our faith to exercise our authority to receive whatever God has made available to us. So here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. In other words, an exact duplicate in kind. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over everything that creepeth upon the earth. God created man to have authority here on this earth. He literally made Adam the God of this world. This is confirmed, for example, in, in uh, Psalms chapter 115, verse 16. It said, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. God created you and me to have authority here on the earth. That was his purpose for putting us here, is to have authority here on the earth. Now, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. This gives us the account of Jesus being tempted of the devil. We'll start in verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said to him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil took him up to a high mountain, showed, him, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou wilt therefore worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answering and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, 
Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him up to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down thence, or from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering, he said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. Now, folks, what was, what was Satan trying to do? What was the temptation that he brought to Jesus? We probably recognize the first one more than any of the others. Jesus was hungry, and the devil told him to command the stones to be turned into bread. Now, if that wasn't a real temptation, or in other words, if Jesus didn't have the power to do that, then he wouldn't have responded to him. Jesus had the power to turn the stones into bread. So what was the temptation? Well, certainly it was a physical temptation because he was hungry. He had emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and was operating on the earth as a man. So he got just as hungry as you and I get. Well, after fasting for 40 days, he'd be really hungry. And the physiology of the body is such that after a point in time when you begin going without food, when you begin fasting, after several days, the desire for hunger or the appetite it is diminished. You stop wanting food. But then there is a, a signal, of, uh, a danger signal that takes place in the body after so long. When you get hungry again, that's your body saying, feed me or I die. So Jesus was obviously hungry. The Bible says so. So the temptation was to misuse his authority or the power that God has given him. Nothing wrong with turning the stones into bread if that's what God led you to do. But the temptation was to obey Satan's words rather than God's word. The other two temptations are exactly the same. They're temptations given or brought by the devil unto Jesus to misuse his authority. Jesus came to get the power over nations. But bowing down to worship Satan wasn't the way to get it. The Lord spoke something to my heart this last week that I should have seen a long time ago, but I never did. Every fight, every fight of faith, every act of faith that you encounter or operate in here on the earth is a fight for your authority. It's interesting that, Je that uh, the devil told Jesus when he showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, it's interesting to me that he talked about having special authority in that area. He said, I'll give you the power of these kingdoms, for that is delivered unto me. Well, who delivered it to him? It certainly wasn't God. The authority over kings and over nations was something that was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. So the virtue, by virtue of the fact that Satan says he has that authority, it means that that authority had been delivered unto him by the one who held that authority, which was man, Adam. 
we see in, in uh, Scripture how that there are unseen forces, spiritual forces, that operate through kings and those in authority here on the earth. Well, that's what Satan is saying was delivered unto him. That's not automatic, and it's not something that can't be overcome. If the devil had the power to rule over kingdoms the way that he wants you to think that he does, then there would never be a possibility for a good or a righteous king. But David was a good and righteous king. Jehoshaphat was a good and righteous king. They were men that even though Satan claimed to have authority over their kingdoms, they, by virtue of the fact that they put the word first and lived by the word, maintained their authority and exercised their authority in a righteous manner. Every faith battle we enter into is a fight for your authority. If you believe in God for your healing, you're fighting the fight of faith, the good fight of faith. You're fighting that to determine who's going to have authority over your body. The sickness of the devil or the healing power of God. If you're fighting a financial battle, you're fighting with the devil for authority. Whether or not you're going to be governed by the law of sin and death, which includes poverty as well as sickness. Or if you're going to operate in the abundance of God that Jesus paid for when he went to the cross for you and me. Every faith battle is a battle for authority. Everything you encounter regarding Satan and the forces of the evil one is a fight for authority. Everything. There's not one area, there's not one action of faith that's a fight for anything other than authority. It's across the board in every way. Now, this thing called authority is an interesting thing. It's not power. There's a distinction between authority and power. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard is one Brother Hagin used to use when he'd talk about a, a traffic cop standing in the middle of an intersection. The traffic cop doesn't have the power or the ability or the strength to hold the cars back while he lets the cars going in the other direction go. But he has authority to do it. Even the most powerful car recognizes when the, when the, the one holding authority, the, the traffic cop, holds up his hand. He may be holding up his hand to stop even though there's a green light in the intersection over his head. But we obey the authority of the police because they're wearing a badge that's the symbol of that authority and we respect it. But as, as I said, he didn't have the strength to hold the cars back. Wouldn't it be silly for him to try to hold them back physically? But he has authority to do so. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Here's an, uh, an incident of the authority that God gave to Moses that fascinates me. The children of Israel have been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. They leave having spoiled the Egyptians. And they come to the place where their backs are to the Red Sea. There's mountains on either side of them. And in front of them are Pharaoh and his chariots. The strongest military force on the face of the earth at that time. 
Now, you remember what took place for Pharaoh to finally relent and let him go. The different plagues in Egypt, the last one was the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. And so Pharaoh, being in such grief over his own son having been killed in this plague, lets Israel go. But then after a short period of time, he changed his heart. He hardened his heart the whole way. And he goes after them. And he's got them trapped. Now God told Moses to take them to the very spot that they are. The people thought Moses was a poor leader because they led him into a place where they had no, place, no way of escape. But Moses is doing exactly what God told him to do. So in Exodus chapter 14, Moses says in verse 13, Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now folks, that's certainly a man of faith speaking words of faith. He's declaring what God's going to do. He's declaring the glory of the Lord that will be seen by the Israelites and also by the Egyptians in this instance. So he finishes up, the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Notice verse 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Wherefore criest thou unto me? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean God doesn't want to be involved with what happens? No, that's not it. If you read further back up into the chapter, God has confided into Moses that through this deliverance that he'll bring to Israel, he will bring glory upon himself. But once Moses knows that, God expects something of him other than prayer. Wherefore criest thou unto me? Now, I've, I've said this many times, and I've kind of said it as a joke, but it's really not a joke. It would seem to me that in a place of distress, when their lives are threatened as they were because of the position that God put them in, that would seem like the perfect time if I was Moses to cry out unto the Lord. But God rebukes him. What are you crying out unto me for? There must be some other manner or some other operation that God has in mind other than the way that Moses is operating. So the Lord cried unto Mo or said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they may go forward. But lift up thou thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Here's the rebuke that God brings to Moses. This is not a time for prayer. This is a time for you to use your authority. Now, why didn't Moses do that without God telling him first? Why didn't Moses just skip the part where he calls unto God and just use the rod? 
If you go back with me to Exodus chapter 4, it tells us the story of when God commissioned Moses to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And they have a, a detailed conversation that's recorded here in the fourth chapter of Exodus. It starts with Moses seeing from the bottom of the mountain a bush that's on fire that doesn't burn up. Now there has to be some, something more to what Moses saw than, the, than what we would normally uh, assume to be the case by reading the scripture. Moses was a long way off and he saw a fire on top of a, a hillside or on top of a mountain. And he recognized that that fire was unusual. There must have been something about this that was, that was different than any other fire he'd ever seen. Because when he sees it, he declares his intent to go up and check it out. When he gets to where the burning bush is, God tells him to take off his shoes, for this is holy ground. Okay, so now Moses has seen a fire burning, uh, burning in a bush that doesn't burn the bush up. So he recognizes that that's unusual, unusual enough to climb a mountain to check it out. And then when he gets there, the bush talks. And God begins to tell him what his, God's plan for Moses is. You remember Moses escaped from Egypt when it was discovered that he had killed an Egyptian, the penalty of which is death. And so at age 40, he left Egypt, wound up on the backside of the desert in Midian, and he becomes a shepherd. And he shepherds for 40 years. He's 80 years old when God speaks to him out of the burning bush. And they have a very detailed conversation. God tells him, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses begins to make all kinds of excuses. He won't listen to me. Who will I say sent me? How will I know that you'll do what you told me you would do? And so God performs a, a couple of signs in his presence. And one was he asked him, what do you have in your hand? And Moses said he had his rod. Now, shepherds used two sticks. One was a, a smaller rod that was used for throwing and close quarter, close quarter combat with wild animals and that type of thing. The other was a staff, the big long shepherd's crook. that was used to pull lambs out of distress and out of dangerous places and so forth. So when God asked Moses, what do you have in your hand? He says, it's the rod, it's the small stick. And he said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it turned into a snake. Moses ran from the snake that his rod turned into. Then God called him back and said, take it by the tail. And he did, and it turned into a rod again. So now when God talks to him about doing these things, his final objection, Moses' final objection to what God wanted him to do, was he said, I can't speak very well. God gets angry at that. He says, who made man's mouth? Was it not me? And can I not make a man's mouth to say what needs to be said? But anyway, he gave him 
Moses' brother, Aaron, to be the mouthpiece for him too. And then God says to him, notice in verse 17, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 17. Here's what God said to Moses. And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. A great many of the ten plagues that Moses brought upon Egypt and Pharaoh were caused by this rod. You remember he touched the dirt, the dust of the ground, and the dust of the ground turned into locusts. He touched the rod to the Red Sea and it became blood. Time after time after time, not all of them, but the majority of the plagues that came to pass upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians was caused by this rod. So by the time that Moses, having seen all these plagues, being released by Pharaoh, but then Pharaoh comes back after him, and Moses knows ahead of time this is going to happen. God's prepared him. This is not a surprise. When Moses tells the people that God will fight for them, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, so to speak. He's had experience with this rod. And that experience is what God expects him to utilize, to rely on where this rod is concerned. In other words, after the ten plagues, God's saying to Moses, haven't you figured this out? The rod is the sign of my power. There's nothing to pray about in this case. Now, folks, remember what God did. In Genesis 1:26, God gave authority on the earth to man. When man fell, he didn't take it back from him. God doesn't give something and take it away. When God gives something to you, this is a well-thought-out and well-planned endeavor. And so he expects Moses to have confidence in the sign of his power, which in his case is the rod. And so God just simply says, there's nothing to pray about, Moses. There's nothing to call out to me to do. Stretch forth your rod over the sea and you'll go over on dry land. And that's exactly what happened. Now notice what God is telling Moses by this principle. He's showing Moses and therefore showing us too that the authority that's been given unto us doesn't depend on us asking God to do something. But the authority that he's given to us is intended by God himself to be utilized by us whenever we need it. This rod continues to be used by Moses. They come to a place not too long after where there's no water. God shows him a rock and tells him to strike the rock with the rod. And when he does, the rock splits in two. And water comes pouring out of the earth in such measure that millions of people and all their livestock, their animals, have water for many days. The rod's still a sign of his power. So, folks, the authority that God has given to us 
the authority that he intends for us to use is not only effectual, but it's mighty through God to affect whatever God's will is, whatever will he's revealed to us from his word. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to begin in verse 24. It's the end of the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount where God is talking about walking in love. He's talking about walking in forgiveness. He's talking about the character and the nature of God and the willingness of God to be a God to his people and to deliver them. So Jesus sums up the Sermon on the Mount this way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and great and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, do you remember the, the temptation of Jesus we looked at just a few moments ago in Luke chapter 4? Jesus dealt with the temptations of the devil in exactly the same way in all three temptations. He responded by saying it was written. In other words, he spoke the word of God to the temptation of Satan. Remember what Satan's trying to get him to do. He's trying to get him to misuse his authority, his God-given authority as a human being born on this earth, born of woman on this earth. Jesus isn't using his authority, the authority he had in heaven before the worlds were. We could take the time to go look in John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying just before he goes to the cross. And one of the things he prays for is that God would give him back, would restore unto him the power that he had with him before the world was. Well, if he's praying that God would restore that back to him, it has to mean that he's not using it at that point in time. See, when the Bible says that Jesus made himself of no reputation, it really means he emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. Now, to what end did he do that? To what end did he empty himself of his heavenly power and glory, the glory of the creator of the universe, so that he could operate here on the earth as a man? And so to operate in the authority that God has given him as a human being, as a man born of a woman here on this earth, he speaks the word. Exactly the same way that God operated in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account. And God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. So here where Jesus is tempted of the devil, he says, and it was for him too. So when Jesus sums this up in Matthew chapter 7, he's saying, the position that we give the word of God in our lives will determine whether the storms of life destroy us or not. Now, he doesn't say if we walk in God, walk in fellowship with God to such a degree 
that we can justify ourselves, then we'll survive the storms of life. He's simply saying if we will exercise our authority to put the word of God first in our lives, that'll save us. It'll save us from the work of the enemy. It'll save us from the attacks that, the, that Satan brings. It'll save us from anything and everything the devil's got. The reverse of that's true as well. If someone misuses their authority or fails to use their authority regarding the word of God as being the foundation for their life, you can mark it down. Sooner or later, the storms of life will destroy them. Same storms. Rain fell. The winds blew. The flood takes place. Same storms, same circumstances will destroy one, but those who put the word of God first place in their lives will overcome whatever the devil brings against them. Now notice, let's, let me prove this to you. Don't just take my word for it. Let me prove this to you. Verse 28, Matthew 7, verse 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now, I want you to notice they weren't astonished with him. They were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine just simply means teaching. When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. We assume that because Jesus was the Son of God, and we built that up to some degree in our lives when it comes to the power that he displayed, the miracles that he did, and so forth, we assume that everybody just recognized that Jesus was the Messiah because of his power. But it was very rare for Jesus to even identify himself as the, as the Messiah. Sixty-five times he refers to himself. Sixty times, sixty of those sixty-five times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Five times, and all of those are in John's Gospel, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. And three of those are in the same incident or the same occurrence where he's talking to the Pharisees. Jesus wanted everybody to recognize that he was the son of man. Jesus wanted everybody to recognize that the things that he did were not because he had the power to do them himself, but it was the father working through him, fulfilling what he had called him to do. So when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. Verse 29 tells us what that teaching entailed. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I'm reading from the King James. Notice the word one, O-N-E, is in italics. Now in the King James, anytime you find a word that's in italics, it's a word that the translators added trying to, attempting to get us to understand what God's word is saying. And in, the most, in most cases, for the most part, the translators did a wonderful job. But there are a couple things that they added in that don't really help us. Now, any translation is dependent on two things. Every translation is dependent on two things. One, a knowledge that the translators would have of the language in this case, the Greek language. But the second thing, and just as important as the knowledge of the language, 
is their knowledge, the translator's knowledge of the, of the character and the nature of God. Now, it seems that pretty much every translation was undertaken by people who believed that God was sovereign and God could control everything and he had all the power on the earth. But that's not true. God created man to have authority. The heaven, even the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth has he given to the children of men. So when they add this word one, it shifts the focus to Jesus. But remember, they were astonished not at who Jesus was. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. For he taught them as having authority. Let's pull that word one out. He taught them as having authority. Now, the word as, look this up for yourself. If you've got a strong concordance, it's easy to identify. The word as, A-S, refers to the manner in which something takes place or how. The word having means to seize or to hold. So this literally translates, they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Well, it certainly fits with the passage that we just read beginning with verse 24 about building your house on the rock of God's word. He's teaching them how to hold authority. He's teaching them that authority depends on what you believe in your heart and say with your mouth. Always. In every situation. Everything the devil will fight you for comes down to how you use or misuse the authority that you've been given by God himself. Now let's look and see what the Bible says about our authority. I want to give you four passages of Scripture that proves conclusively that as far as God is concerned, you have authority over the devil. What you do with that is up to you. Whether you ever exercise it or not is up to you. It's your choice. But the Bible, God certainly does his, his part and is faithful to show us who we are if we're willing to step up and, and take that place in Christ. The first is in Luke chapter 10. The first witness is Jesus himself. Now Jesus sends the 70 out to go to cities that he would himself go to. And he tells them that when they come to a place, if the people will receive them to heal the sick that are in those cities. Now, he tells them to go preach in the gospel of the kingdom. Now, what is the gospel of the kingdom? They're not going to preach, which I thought for a long time. I thought the disciples went and preached that Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus didn't even preach that he was the Messiah. Why would he expect them to preach something that he didn't preach himself? There were times, don't get me wrong, there were times where he revealed himself as the Messiah. 
But he never went out trying to preach that or trying to prove to people that he was. In fact, there are several places where somebody identifies him as the Messiah and he instructs them not to tell other people about it. I thought Jesus did healing miracles and signs and wonders to prove that he was the Christ, to prove that he was the Messiah. And there are a couple of places where it looks that way, but not many. So Jesus sends the 70 out, and they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. That's verse 17. Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. If you look in the instructions that he gave them earlier in the chapter, he doesn't say a word about casting devils out. Not one word. He doesn't say anything about delivering anybody. The only thing he talks about is healing, healing the sick if the people will receive it. When Jesus went to his own hometown of Nazareth, as recorded in Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6. It says Jesus could there in Nazareth, his own hometown, the place that he grew up. It says he could there do no mighty works, save or except that he healed a few folks with minor ailments, people that didn't have too much wrong with them. And he marveled at their unbelief. Now, it doesn't say that he wouldn't do anything. It says that he couldn't, could not. In other words, had no ability to do anything in that town. Now, I know that's blasphemous thought for some people. The very idea that God himself couldn't do any mighty work whenever he wanted to do it. But folks, there were many times where unbelief, doubt and unbelief kept Jesus from doing what God sent him here on the earth to do. If you look at the numbers of cases that Jesus ministered healing in the four Gospels, you'll find that there are 19 individual cases of healing. Now, some of the writers record the same story, so it seems to us like there would be many more than that. But if you divide them up individually, there are 19 individual cases where Jesus healed the sick. Doesn't count the multitudes, doesn't count the 10 lepers that were healed as they went or different groups like that but 19 individual cases of healing. Of those 19, 75%, a full 75% identify the faith of the individual and the role of that faith in bringing healing to their bodies. 75%. If it took faith on the part of the individual for Jesus to get 75% of the, the people healed that we have record of in the four Gospels, then why would we think that it would take anything less than faith for us to do the same works that he did? See, God doesn't usurp man's will. And the people in Nazareth refused to receive Jesus because they thought they knew him from a child. They knew his parents, they knew his brothers and sisters, his half-brothers and sisters, really. And they thought, since the prophecy was widely known that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, they thought that Jesus, having a mother and father, all of his life, all of the years that he grew up in the town of Nazareth, 
he thought that disqualified. They thought that disqualified Jesus from being the Messiah. Now, this is one of the times, one of the places where Jesus openly declared who he was. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, he begins to preach, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to preach recovering of sight to the blind, and so forth. Then when he finishes reading it, he sits down and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying these scriptures that everybody knew pertain to the Messiah. He's saying that's talking about me. It's interesting to me that in one of the places where he is so open and upfront, much more so than other places, they rejected him. They refused to have faith. They refused to believe. Even though they had heard of signs and wonders and miracles of healing taking place in other places, specifically Capernaum. So faith is necessary to take hold of the things of God. No matter how much God wants you to have something, you and I have to believe for it for it, for it to become a reality. So the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now he's not saying Satan fell when they began to use his name to cast out devils. He's talking about how Satan was cast out of heaven when there was a war where a third of the angels went with Satan and rebelled against God. God defeated him, cast him down into the earth, and Satan was here on the earth when God recreated the earth itself. The Genesis account of creation shows how things took place around Satan. He was here. He was present. God wasn't worried about Satan. He wasn't worried about Satan's power. He wasn't even worried about Satan's deceit that caused man to deliver a portion of his authority over to him. God is well aware that the power that Jesus has made available to us by his death, burial, and resurrection is more than enough to overcome the enemy. The problem is the people that have the authority, the people that have been given the authority to use to overcome Satan and his works and his devices don't know that they have it. So Jesus goes on to say, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He's identifying that Satan is a fallen and defeated being. Well, if he was a fallen and defeated being before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, how much more is he a fallen and defeated being now? Jesus said in verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. These two words, power, are different words. The first word should be authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. The second word, power, means ability. So he's not saying, I've made you stronger than the devil. He said, I've given you authority over all of his power. Isn't that the same thing that he said in Matthew chapter 7? When you build your house on the rock, the storms of life will not defeat you, will not destroy you. 
Well, what are the storms of life? The works of Satan. The operations of the enemy. So here he says, Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That means we can come to the place and grow in knowledge of who we are in Christ to the degree that we utilize our authority so that Satan has no weapon whatsoever that can cause us to fail or to go under. Now that's Jesus himself. That's Jesus telling his disciples and saving a record for us so that we could take advantage of it as well. Just the same as him saying it to us face to face instead of to them. That we have been given authority over all the power of the enemy. And nothing, no thing, shall by any means hurt us. That word hurt might be better uh, translated defeat us. The devil doesn't have enough power to overcome your authority. But you know as well as I do, just because we're saved, just because the Bible says we have authority, doesn't put that authority in motion in our lives. We have to begin to agree with God and agree with his word. Build our house on the rock of God's word so that his devices do not cause us to go under. Let's look at the next one. That's the first witness. James chapter 4, verse 7. James says, inspired by the Holy Ghost, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, folks, if you don't have authority over the devil, then what good is resisting going to do? We see how Jesus resisted the devil. Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, when he was tempted of the devil, he quoted the word. He spoke the word of God to overcome the temptation that Satan brought to him to misuse his authority. His temptation was the same as ours. Satan comes to us in an attempt to get us to yield to his words, thereby exercising authority toward what Satan has done or what Satan says rather than what God says. James says, resist the devil and he shall flee from you. If you don't have authority over him, resisting him won't do any good. Resisting him is a useless and unfruitful exercise unless we have authority over him. So here's James inspired by the Holy Ghost as the second witness that we have authority over Satan. Resist the devil and he shall flee from you. Look with me over to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll start in verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all of your care upon him for he careth for you. Folks, notice the condition that we're supposed to be in, the condition that we're supposed to live in on this world. No matter what's going on around us, we're to be carefree 
because of the authority that we have in, in Jesus. Casting all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I want you to notice something. It doesn't say Satan is a roaring lion. It says he walks about as a roaring lion. Now, what's the condition or what is the characteristic of a roaring lion? Satan walks around making a lot of noise. That's what a roar of a lion is, isn't it? Satan walks about as a roaring lion. doesn't say he is a lion. It says he is as one. He makes a lot of noise. To what end? What's he trying to make noise about? Why does he speak in the way that he does? Why does he bring doubts to our mind? Why does he cause circumstances to take place in our, in our lives? Because he's fighting for our authority. He's trying to gain authority in our lives to bring those storms of life against us to cause us to go under instead of to go over. He's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, is the word may, is that a word of power or ability? It's a word of permission. Satan's looking for who will let him devour them. Well, if Satan has authority on the earth, why didn't he just decide who he's going to devour and be done with it? Because he doesn't have that kind of authority. He has the authority to be on this earth. He has a legal right at this point. He didn't early on, but he has a legal right to operate on this world or in this earth at this present time in an attempt to deceive people into misusing their authority. One of his great means of deception is keeping people in the dark about the fact that they have authority. So he's walking about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for people to give him permission to devour them. Jonah said from the belly of the fish, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Jonah's circumstance certainly looked like defeat. He ran from God and God caught him. He was cast into the sea and swallowed up by a fish. So that fish can either be Jonah's grave or his means of transportation. Jonah seemed to recognize that he had something to do with whichever way it went. They that observe lying vanities. He's calling the fish that he's in the middle of a lying vanity. Now he's not saying the fish isn't real. He's not saying he wasn't swallowed by the fish. He's simply saying the, the fish itself is not enough to keep God's will from coming to pass in his life if he exercises his authority in the right way. So they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. That's what Satan's trying to do to get you and I to allow him to devour us. He brings circumstances that contradict God's word. 
trying to get us to side in with the circumstance. But there is no circumstance that, can, that is not subject to change. There is no position, no condition, no circumstance in this earth or will ever be in this earth that is not subject to change. Physical things change, but God's Word never changes. So if we build our lives on the Word, like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, no matter what it looks like when the rains come, no matter how hard the winds blow, no matter how high the floodwaters get, they won't take us under. So Satan, your adversary, is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Now what should we do about this? Verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith? He's saying here's how to beat the devil. Here's how to defeat him on his own home turf. Resist him steadfast in your faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Let me give you the fourth witness. We've seen what James had to say. We saw what Jesus had to say. We've seen what Peter has to say. Let's see what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's the one that tells us about the devil traveling one and only one road. That is the road to deception. He's the one that tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Notice how much that list sounds like the power of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Another word for principalities is magistrates or ruler, a lower, a lower level ruler. Principalities and powers. There are spiritual powers that are at work behind the scenes. Rulers of the darkness of this world. We see that over and over again where wicked kings have wicked evil spirits that are over them, influencing them, and in many cases working in concert with them. And then the fourth type that Paul tells us about when it comes to the operation of the devil is wicked spirits in the heavenly places. You remember when the angel came to Daniel? Daniel said himself to, to fast, to pray about what, when Israel would be released from the bondage of Babylon. The angel shows up and says, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you began to fast, 21 days earlier, I was sent from heaven with your answer. But then he says this. He said, but the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Who is this? One of those wicked spirits in heavenly places. And he says, I only made it through because Michael came to help me. And he says, I'm going back as soon as I leave here from you. As soon as I finish delivering the message that you sent for or asked God for, I'm going back to rejoin the fight. So Paul tells us 
in not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces. If we didn't have any power, we wouldn't be in the fight. So he tells the church at Ephesus to put away lying, be angry and sin not. He doesn't say anger is a sin, but it can turn into sin depending on how you deal with it. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Notice verse 27, neither give place to the devil. Now, folks, if you don't have authority over him, then you can't determine. You can't do anything to, to, uh, to determine whether or not you give place to it. But because we walk by faith and not by sight, we have authority over the devil. So here's four witnesses, Jesus, Paul, Peter, and James. Four witnesses in the New Testament that the authority in this earth is yours, not his. Folks, I was reminded of something that happened 12 years ago. 12 years ago, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. While I'm talking about this, turn with me to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm sorry, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who, here's the character and the nature of God, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice that salvation and coming to the knowledge of the truth are not automatically the same thing. Certainly salvation is coming to the knowledge of the truth concerning redemption and the forgiveness of sins and of righteousness. But there's way more truth to be open to than just that. So God wants everybody to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if God wants everybody to be saved, then why isn't everybody going to be saved? Because the choice is man. Man has authority. Man has authority even unto his own salvation, whether or not he will be saved. Remember, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I'll come in unto him. In other words, it's the will of man that determines whether they'll be saved or not. Jesus paid the price for the sins of the whole world. No matter how bad somebody is, no matter what terrible things they may have done, Jesus paid the price for them to be saved if they will accept it. But it's up to them, not him. It's up to man, not God. Twelve years ago, President Obama was elected, and I knew almost immediately that he would serve two terms. It was just something that God witnessed in my heart. Well, I know that the Bible says to pray for kings and those that are in authority. I know the Bible tells me to pray for him. But I was having the toughest time praying for him than any other thing that I had ever done in my life. Because I knew that he wasn't going to yield to whatever God wanted him to do, even if Jesus appeared to him in a vision. 
Now, Moses was kind of stupid when it came to talking to God. He sees God in a burning bush. He hears the bush talking to him, the voice of the Lord coming from the bush. And then Moses said, Lord, show me a sign. Which indicates pretty clearly to us that signs aren't the things that convince people. Here Moses is seeing God in the burning bush, hearing from God in the burning bush and saying, what sign will you give me? The people that say, if I just had a sign, I'd believe, wouldn't believe no matter what they saw. Because if it takes a sign, your heart's not open. Well, I knew that to be the case with President Obama. If Jesus appeared to him in the flesh, I doubt very seriously it would have changed anything that he did or said. You may remember one of the first things that he did is declare that America was no longer a Christian nation. Well, it was all downhill from there. So I was having a real problem. And I went to the Lord about it because I was being convicted that I should pray for it. But it was like one of those things where your prayers just went as high as the ceiling and then fell back down to the earth. At least that's the way it seemed. So I asked the Lord about it. I said, Lord, you're going to have to help me. I don't know how in the world I'm going to get through the next eight years praying for this guy. And the Lord said, who did I tell you to pray for? I said, for kings and those that are in authority. I said, that's the problem I'm having. He is, by virtue of the fact, the king of the country by the office that he holds. He's the one in authority. And the Lord answered me. I'll never forget it. The Lord answered me, kind of sarcastic, because that's kind of how I am with him sometimes. And the Lord answered me with a little bit of sarcasm, and he said, huh, I always thought the people of America were the ones in authority. Whoa. Now, folks, you've got to realize, Paul never had any inkling of any government structure or government power where the people could vote for themselves and get what they want. When Paul writes these things, he knows something about the Republic of, the, of Rome. But there was so much corruption and so much evil activity associated with the Roman Senate and certainly the Caesars and their power and all that kind of stuff. They didn't know where closely resembled anything that the founding fathers gave us here in America. So as soon as I heard that from the Lord, that changed everything about my prayer life. I began to pray that the eyes of the, the church would be opened. I, began, I, didn't, I didn't stop praying for President Obama, but I didn't spend much time there. I reminded the Lord that you said I'm supposed to pray for kings, so I pray for him. Now let's move on to something that works. <laughs> so I began to pray for the people of America. Now, folks... God plays chess. He's always working on several moves down the road. But we in, uh, in the church have a tendency to play checkers. 
Now, checkers is always an instant reaction to something that your opponent has done. And that's the way a lot of people's prayer life works. They see or hear something on the news, and they react in prayer to what they think should take place. The simple fact is this. If we hadn't had a President Obama, we wouldn't have a President Trump. Wouldn't have happened. So all the time I'm praying for those that are in authority, and in America, that's us, the people, not necessarily the leaders. Could be the leaders, but not necessarily. God's working on things 12 years down the road. Now, it should be the easiest thing in the world for God to talk to his children and for his children to have direction on what to do in life. But you know as well as I do that just being saved doesn't mean you're hearing the voice of God. It doesn't even mean that you've opened yourself up to hear the voice of God. There's too many people in the church that don't even know you can hear the voice of God. That's why it staggers me. And it's like it's a new revelation every time it happens. When I hear some Christian talking about how they're going to vote for the party that has outlawed God as a part of their party platform and supports murder of unborn children to such a degree that the president had to issue an executive order that any botched abortion that left a child living could not be killed. Abortion goes a long way. Abortion, according to the Democrat Party, goes a long way beyond just in the womb. How does a Christian support that? Well, a Christian that's in fellowship with God, walking with God and yielding to his voice, can't. But I see arguments on social networks every day where people say, I'm a Christian and I'm voting for the Democrat. I don't know how you do that. I don't understand, especially seeing all the information that the Bible tells us and gives us about the work of Satan behind government and kingdoms. How does that not spark somebody to pray to make sure that they're doing what God would have them do? It's impossible for God to say vote Democrat to any child of God based on their party platform and what they believe and what they do. God can't deny himself. He can't say thou shalt not kill which in the Old Testament really is thou shalt not murder. Murder is the shedding of innocent blood. That's why you can be against abortion and for the death penalty. Because the unborn is innocent blood. Committing a capital offense is an innocent blood being shed.
I exhort therefore that first of all, supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I saw somebody try to justify, a Christian trying to justify their position, talking to somebody else, to other people. And he said this, he said, Jesus was the greatest liberal of them all. Now, folks, Jesus was extremely liberal, liberal in his giving. He was all the time giving to the poor. At the Last Supper, when the disciples saw Judas leaving, they assumed that he's obeying Jesus' uh, instruction to go give to the poor. I don't know anybody. I don't know any. I have never known anybody that when they get up and leave the room that I had the thought that they're going to give to the poor. <laughs> have you? So Jesus was certainly liberal in giving to the poor. But Jesus is the one that gave us the story of the talents. Where the master left and gave one individual five talents, another individual two talents, and another individual one talent. He came back to check on what they had done, and the one that had five made five more. So now he's got ten. The one that had two earned three more, so now he's got five. And the one that had one buried it in the ground. Because by his own admission, he said, I know you. I know you take what's not yours. And so I didn't want to get in trouble having lost yours. So I delivered it back to you. Now, the parable that Jesus is telling us and showing us about God himself. And the very thing that Jesus tells us that we should strive for is to be able to stand before the Lord and the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, God's about results. The Bible says that any tree that doesn't produce fruit should be cut down. Now, Jesus did not say that we should look forward to standing before God and God saying, well, that's all right. I know you meant well. God's into results. That's not liberalism, folks. That's capitalism straight up. It's not socialism. It's not communism. Now, somebody might say, well, in the book of Acts, it talks about how they brought all their stuff together and, led, and lived in a communal way. Well, there was a period of time when people were selling their lands and bringing them to the church to be able to uh, provide for other people. But it sure wasn't a very long time after that that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was besieged. And the persecution that came on the church scattered them throughout the world. So we could say rather than God giving us an example of communism, we could simply say that it was the Holy Ghost showing them things to come so that they could utilize their properties and their, their resources before they were scattered throughout the world. That's not communism. That's being led by the Holy Ghost. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, 
first of all. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Folks, our prayers should not just be for our president or the cabinet or the elected officials, but we should pray diligently, maybe more diligently concerning this than anything else. But diligently pray for the eyes of the Christians worldwide to be open to the truth. Let's do that now. Would you stand together with me, please? Hallelujah. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you in obedience to your word. We see your word says that we should pray for kings. And for all that are in authority. So first and foremost, we pray for our, our president. We pray for his advisors. We pray for all those that have surrounded, that do surround him. We pray for the elected officials, Father. We pray that they would be open to the truth of your word. That they would be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give them divinely inspired ideas that would benefit your people and benefit this nation. Father, we know that not everybody is going to yield to your voice. We know that many have joined together, joined themselves together with the devil's agenda with their eyes wide open. And so we ask you, Father, that you would expose the devil's plan, that you would bring to light those things that have been kept in the dark, that you would cause those people that have willingly joined themselves to the devil's agenda to come to ruin that they would lose their place in representing the people of this nation. Now, Father, we ask you to do the simplest or what should be the simplest and easiest thing in the world for you to do, and that is to open the eyes of your people, to speak to them about doing the right thing, about using their influence, their authority in the right manner. We pray, Father, in Jesus' precious name, that there would be a revival in this country. That people would be able to receive easily and clearly, simply, the truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus died for their sins. Father, we know that it's not in times of turmoil that those things can easily take place. But even as Paul tells us, you desire for us to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That that is your will for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Holy Spirit, we know that there's much more to pray about these things than we can reason in our minds. So we ask you to speak through our lips in other tongues that we might be able to pray divine secrets before the Father. Nera vengo rava to shura vesutu shura 
Father, bring us back to this place of prayer. Let us make this an everyday thing where we meet with you, maybe not for a long period of time, but for some time that we might pray your perfect will upon this earth. That your will may be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Open doors of utterance to us, Father. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we worship you. We exalt your holy name. We bless you, Father, for your great plan of redemption. We thank you for enabling us to live in these last days. Perilous times, certainly. But we know who we are in Christ. Thank you, Father for guiding us, for ordering our steps, for giving us utterance to speak to those we should speak to and wisdom to be silent when we should be silent. 